The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Things We All Carry. This week, my conversation is with Jay, a firefighter paramedic from a suburban Chicago fire department. He is a 15-year veteran, including 11 at his current department. I first learned of his story after he reached out to me via the mystory@thethingsweallcarry.com email. His story stood out to me because of the numerous similarities between my life and his, and we delve into some of that during the show. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, All right. and even if it works in the flow of the show, I, I might just keep it in anyway. It doesn't matter. This is not a professionally produced podcast. This is a firefighter <laughs> learning his way. All right, so I'm going to go ahead. And I'll try not to you know, destroy this introduction because I normally do, but we'll go ahead and get started if you're ready. Yep. All right, so today joining me on the show is Jay. He works for a suburban Chicago fire district. He's been in that department, career department for 11 years, correct, Jay? Yes. And then 15 years total, correct? Yeah, 15 years in the fire service. And he is in a firehouse where he drives at the tower but jumps to the ambulance quite frequently. He's uh, married with two two daughters, and on his spare time away from the firehouse, he's a stay-at-home dad. So I'm going to let him jump in and start telling you some of his family history and introduce himself. So how you doing, Jay? Good, man. I want to say thanks for having me on the show. No, no problem. Um, thanks I, for coming. I like what you're doing. I love the show. I think what you're doing is a good thing, and I'm happy and honored to be a part of it. Thank you for those words, man. I appreciate it. You got my intro dialed in. That's uh, that's me in a nutshell right now. And yeah, I'm working the 24-48 schedule. So my 48, I get my ass home to get my girls ready for school and get them off. And the right school just started right now. So that's an adjustment we're all going through. But yes, I started out, grew up right around where I live now. Uh, normal childhood, I thought. I got two brothers and a sister. My parents, I had a stay-at-home mom and my dad worked his ass off and fine. And it was a good life. I had a great childhood growing up. We always, we were well taken care of. We had anything we needed, but we weren't spoiled if that makes sense <laughs> i think my dad did a good job in that regard and i was lucky enough to have a stay-at-home mom we were super cool together she was always my best friend had my back no matter what once i got a little older started getting into some shit but i also once i got a little older teenage years i felt like uh I was realizing I felt like a little bit of black sheep in my family i was right behind my brother and sister in school and they were like straight a students Never really partied much or anything like that. And I was kind of right behind them and basically almost the exact opposite. I was more into sports, less into school, got more into partying. And when I got older, I did, didn't really care much for school at all. And I just always got by. There was nothing really that interested me. 
And then also growing up in my household, and I think it was maybe a little bit of the, maybe the old school way my parents were raised, but my parents basically every day, my dad would get home from work and my mom would have a cocktail poured for him on the counter. And we usually have to wait for dad to have a drink or two before we sit down for dinner as a family. And then my mom would usually have a glass of wine with dinner, maybe a glass of wine after dinner. So that was something that was, I was exposed to pretty much every day. And I didn't think much about it at the time until I got a little older. And I think it kind of, I don't want to say made me numb to alcohol or anything, but I just didn't think it was a part of their everyday life. It wasn't anything that was like out of control. Just took one or two drinks, no big deal. And everyone went to bed. It wasn't any like fighting or getting drunk or like highly intoxicated, anything like that at all. But I think that kind of influenced me or maybe made me think that alcohol is just not a big deal at all. And so I kind of started experimenting with it probably younger than most, probably sixth, seventh, seventh grade, maybe sneak a couple beers out of the garage fridge with some buddies or this guy would steal a bottle from his parents' liquor cabinet. And we just kind of, I guess, got started a little early and that kind of just continued through high school and college with the party and not caring about school. And I was able to somehow miraculously get by with an undergrad degree in uh, communications. And, but I did started, I smoked a little weed in high school, did that in college too. And then started, uh, I had ended up getting a prescription for ADD medication, which helped me stay focused in school, uh, help me kind of get on the right track academically a little bit. I was able to, you know, pull myself together a little bit in the classroom, but I also used it on the weekends partying with, so I was uh, spiraling out of control in college and thank God I was able to graduate when I did because I don't think my body could have handled any more of that abuse I was putting it through. So fast forward to graduate college, come home, I have this degree that I have no idea what communications graduates get a job in. <laughs> and I didn't want to go to grad school. So I had a shitty job working in a cubicle in advertising downtown Chicago. And I absolutely hated it. But it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because I cut down to part-time hours and started going to, I did EMT school first and then paramedic school. And then I started my career in the fire service. You talked about your journey with alcohol, starting in sixth and seventh grade or so and being earlier than others. And I think throughout your story, we're going to have a couple of similarities as we go. And high school was the same for me, but, and that's when you sent me your email, that's one of the things that jumped out at me is, is that you started that early. Cause I always thought that I was rare for starting early <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I, I, it's not a badge of honor and I'm not trying to wear one as is not trying to wear it as a badge of honor, but it's just a, a, a kindred spirits, recognized kindred spirits kind of thing. And I'm glad you said that because that's something that I realize in listening to most of your episodes that I haven't listened to every single one, but um, I feel like a connection with pretty much every person, whether it's through that or something with the job or family, but there's some, some kind of connection, you know what I mean? So I appreciate you saying that. 
Yeah, there, I've said this all along to people who've asked me about the show. As a matter of fact, I, I was asked yesterday, how, do, how does it affect you when you talk to people? And I think the biggest thing that affects me is the fact that I take something away from everybody's story and I realize that there's a part of me in everybody's story. And as I said, there's a couple, there are a couple parts in, in your story that are definitely from my story. So the drinking <laughs> and the high school. And, it will, and then the obvious one, we'll get into some parents' health issues later on. But, but yeah, my own journey with alcohol started in, in the fifth grade. It just ramped up from there for me. Yeah, I know exactly what that kind of childhood of experimentation was, it was like. Yeah, I ended up going to a, a private high school that had a reputation as being a party school somehow. And sure enough, my first day of freshman year, riding home with my buddy's older brother, we peel off to a keg party and I'm, you know, 14 years old, got doing keg stands, spilling beer on my tie. <laughs> I didn't even have the tie off. I'm doing keg stands, flipped up with the seniors and come home, fucked up at six o'clock on my first day of high school. Just, all right, what's for dinner? <laughs> it was just, that's how high school started for me. And that's probably how it ended too. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely tell you that's how it started and ended for me. And, and I barely graduated high school, even though I'm not a dumb person, I don't believe. So yeah, <laughs> it's it was a matter of not giving a shit. Yeah. All right, so you, you get your EMT. And where do you go from there once you get your EMT? So that was just the uh, first stepping stone for me. And because up here, pretty much you got to be a paramedic to even apply to any fire department or suburban department. So I did the EMT thing and I actually very briefly worked on a private ambulance doing transports, discharge, whatever, while I was getting ready for paramedic school. And then I got into paramedic school and cut the private ambulance and just focused on the paramedic school full time because that was a lot of work. And then once I got through there, I was a medic and I got hired at a suburban fire department as a contracted paramedic doing the 2448s. And then I got my firefighter training in-house with their uh, part-time paid on call guys, which allowed me to test for career agencies. And then it took me a few years working there. I was there about a little under five years, I think, four, four, four and change, then testing, testing. It used to be very competitive, and right now that's not the case. <laughs> so I was yeah, lucky we, enough to uh, get the job back in, uh, I started January of 2012. We career. could do an entire show on, on on why it's not competitive anymore, and that's a yeah. whole subject. Actually, I sat down with, with a guy, called, his name is James Gearing the other day, and he runs the um, behind the shield podcast and we sat down and talked oh, okay. about that somewhat the other day and so that's there was a good conversation but yeah it's it you're right it's not as competitive and the, the candidate pool is so much smaller yeah it's crazy it seems like that's the way it is across the board for everyone yeah and trying to figure out why that is is, is it's doing trigonometry i think and so there's so <laughs> many there's so many variables as to why it is yeah. and i don't think we're going to solve solve that anytime soon we just hope that we can keep people in the seats that's for sure issue. so four and a half years with the the contract and the on-call correct yeah and then where do you go from there so then i then i got hired at my career agency and i've been there almost 11 years now um the i'm at the truck driver, sometimes a firefighter at the truck house, and I'm on a member of the TRT, the technical rescue team. And yeah, that's it's going good. I'm actually going through the promotional process for the first time right now. That's been an interesting experience, a learning experience. So what's that next step for you? So coming up next, we got the tactical scenario and then followed by the written exam. So we've only had the uh, interview so far. So it's uh, a lot of preparation going into it. I hope to just give it my all. 
and then that puts you, you're testing for what rank? Oh, I'm sorry, for a lieutenant. Okay, so it's firefighter to lieutenant. Is that the yes? Okay, because here we have two levels of firefighter, then then lieutenant. That's why I was curious. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, no, we're just firefighters and then lieutenant and then uh, battalion chief from okay. there. All right. I know you wrote down some notes and you did a timeline for it. I don't know yeah. where you want to start with that or however you so, want to go. You, I'm going to give the floor to you and you can run with I can. it. Cool. Thank you, Stick. I got involved in the fire service. I don't want to say on a whim, but I'd say I kind of got nudged along a little bit by my father. He had a buddy that he worked with in finance that left early on to join the Chicago Fire Department. And we used to visit there on the weekend sometimes. I remember we had uh, my brother's birthday party there at the firehouse. I thought that was cool. And my dad always, man, this is so, he's going to have two jobs. He's got two, pulling on two pensions when it's all said and done. He was a carpenter on the side. And uh, he just always thought this guy, He's got two jobs. He likes them both. I have one job. I don't even like it. He always planted that seed in the back of my head. And then after college, yeah, I got in touch with his buddy who was on CFD. I, that was kind of my goal at the time. And their hiring and testing was so rare and didn't work out there. And I'm glad it didn't. I'm happy to be where I'm in a smaller agency. But I kind of, I think, owe a little bit to my dad. That's how I ended up where I'm at. And I think that's cool. And actually, yeah, so I... I remember when I got hired full time, I was like, man, this is the best thing ever happened to me. I was so pumped, so excited. And then just a few months later, my dad gave me a call and he said, how about you come on over for breakfast after shift? I was like, all right, cool. He never really did that. I mean, I'd stop by once in a while. We'd bullshit or whatever. The specific invitation caught me as a little weird. So then he sat me down and told me that he's got lung cancer. And that was a game changer. That kind of flipped my life upside down at that time. And I was going through probation at the time too. So that was a, a tough time in my life. But at the same time, January of 13 then is when I was sworn sworn in off probation and he was able to present me my badge. And that's one of the last memories I have of him. He passed a few months after that. Oh, that's a memory I'll carry with me forever. Yeah, that's not a bad memory to to carry with you. Yeah, thank God I got it because that's the best, probably the best memory I have of my dad, to be honest. And it's that was one of the biggest days of my life at that time, and I was just happy to share it with him. But while he was sick, that was tough. I kind of, I was still, I think I was twenty eight, twenty nine, partying in the city, living downtown, living the life, and I dropped everything and rented a house right near them in the burbs just so I could be around to help my mom out, try to take any burden I could off of her. Cause I know she was dealing with a lot, trying to get him to doctor's appointments and treatments and this and that. So my mom and I spent a lot of time together during that year too. And usually after my dad would go to sleep, we would sit up and have some drinks and sometimes she'd cry. Sometimes I'd cry, but we were both there for each other. And I know it meant a lot to me, and I like to think it meant a lot to my mom. <laughs> so that's a unique bond that we have. My, I got a sister who was living out on the East Coast at the time, and then two brothers that were also living downtown, and they'd come visit and stuff. But I really went all in on that to try to be there for both my parents as much as I could going through the shit they were going through. And I think that 
impacted me a little bit, actually a lot of it over the years. I think it's still impacted me, but I still am happy to have been able to be there and try to help out and spend as much time with them as I could. I try to look at the positive through that shitty experience. And so I'm going through probation and dealing with that on my off days and mixing in probably a little bit too much booze on some of those off days just to try to cope. And I was a mess, man. It was like try to get my head right for 24 on probation and then come home and just be like exhausted and then try to help my mom out and get my dad to doctor's appointments. I was like, I'd bring him over to my house because I was renting a ranch. It had a first floor bathroom that he could use. So we'd go over there and just and I'd carry him up to his bed at night at home. And it was just uh, a lot. And I felt like I was just getting by and like just surviving, if you will. And it took a lot out of me, but I'm happy that I was able to try to help out my parents and I would do it again in a heartbeat. But during that time, actually, I I recognized that I was, I guess, in a funk. I didn't want to admit that I was probably like clinically depressed, but I did try therapy. My dad was still alive when I started going and I just called up whatever I Googled somebody and just went and saw him and it was uh not a very good experience i didn't have any type of connection with the, the provider he ended up he put me on meds right away which i didn't really want to do but at the same time i kind of felt i don't know if i felt helpless i felt fucked up and i was like maybe i should just go on meds that could that could help it's not going to hurt any anymore than i'm already fucked up so i did that I stopped seeing the therapist, but I stayed on the meds for however long it was. I can't remember. They usually give you a timeline, you know, stay on it for eight weeks or to see the results or effects. So I kind of, I gave that a go for whatever the recommendation was and then stopped the therapist. I ended up stopping the meds after a while and I was happy to get off the medication, but I didn't feel like the therapy was much help and it was just a bad experience overall. Do you remember what meds? I actually do not. I have some kind of antidepressant meds, right. but I, I really, I took them for a little while. And like I said, it, it, maybe I owe a little something to them that got me out of my funk, but um, I'm happy to not be on them forever, <laughs> if that makes sense. No, it does. It definitely makes sense. And and I guess the which one specifically doesn't really matter. It's just the fact that you had the experience and you found what you may or may not have needed from it. Yeah. True. So that, that was my, yeah, my first attempt at therapy. And that was, yeah, back in like 2000, end of 2012, probably 2013. And then we never, I don't think mentioned the job once in therapy, which I thought was weird. I know I don't want the job to define me, but at the same time, I think it's part of me and definitely contributes to how my brain functions and operates, how my body feels. You know what I'm saying? If that makes sense to you. Yeah, it does. So I found that was part of it too, where I'm like, this guy, I'm just wasting my time with this guy. He doesn't even know what a firefighter does. And that's something so, I hear, that's something I hear quite often is that connection part again. Yeah. So that was a pretty easy decision for me to say, all right, I'm done with this guy. It was no, not very helpful. Like I said, I got some meds out of it. So maybe that, I do owe him a little something for that, but all in all, yeah, there was no real connection at all. Like I said, he never once really mentioned the job, 
And so here I am going on with the job. And I think fast forward actually till let's say I got married six years ago. I got two little girls and I was just, I had some, I don't want to say marital issues. I, I just, I was who I was. I was, uh, always seemed upset i was always short with my wife never very pleasant to talk to particularly after shift but probably other times as well and it led to basically my wife always i don't want to say always yelling at me but it would get to that point where she would be so annoyed and fed up with my bullshit that even just just talking to you is a pain and not anything I want to do because you were so unpleasant to talk to. And that had happened more than one occasion where we had a conversation like that, where she had the conversation and I'm just sitting there waiting for it to be over. Like I used to do when I was a kid getting yelled at, just waiting for it to be over because I don't really care. <laughs> On to the next thing. That's not how my brain worked, but I saw, I could see the pain in her eyes and that just made me sick. I didn't want to be the reason to cause her any hurt. I didn't want to go through a divorce and put my kids through that. So I knew that some shit had to change. And thankfully, I had actually been listening to a uh, different podcast with somebody that I know and respect. She's a fire chief in my area. And I saw her name on the list of episodes. And she actually used to babysit me when I was a kid. So I thought, I'm going to listen to see what she's got to say. And she actually shared her, her, some of her personal struggles and what she's gone through personally, professionally, and seeking out help and her experience through EMDR. And I thought that was interesting. And she was very open and she shared everything. And it opened my eyes, made me think maybe that's worth a try because I know the way things were going, I know which direction I, we were heading. That scared me. And I know also that I was the bulk of the reason that we were not kind of, I don't know, experiencing a happy, normal marriage. Or so I felt guilty and I felt like I needed to work on myself. And so I started therapy again. I gave it another try. And it's been a way different experience this time around. There's been like a complete 180 compared to my first experience. And I was lucky enough to, again, just through Google, but I found a, um, a first responder clinic nearby that every provider there has time on the job, whether it's a cop, fireman, medic. I actually see a retired cop. And she is going through to get her doctorate in counseling. And I don't know if she's doing like intern hours right now under the whatever, under the director. But I know she served time as an evidence tech and crime scene processor. And she's uh, she's legit. I feel like a connection with her. So that is huge as far as feeling comfortable and a connection. And throughout the time in the therapy, have you found that it's the family stuff from, say, your dad's illness or growing up, or has it been the, the job that, that's affected you the most with these relationships? So I think it's been both, to be honest. And that's something that, like, 
I didn't really we just briefly talk about mental health and wellness, what to be looking for with the guys you work with and things like that. I think it's always real on the surface. So when I went in there, I had no idea what to expect this time around. And she explained to me the way our brains work and it just it just made sense to me right off the bat. We got all the dark humor and we just keep burying shit. She's like every trauma you're exposed to or every call, it's like your brain taking a snapshot and that that's in your brain. Whether you process it one way or another or don't at all, you know, that's kind of on me. And that's something that I learned from her right away. And to be operating that way for 24 hours a day, where brushing shit off, laughing, joking about sick shit or whatever, I can't come home and be that same way. My brain has to reset and I need to be, I need to be there and be present for my family. And I don't think I was doing a very good job of that. And that's something that I'm still working on. I come in some night after some nights with no sleep and just fried. And I can just tell my wife, now, hey, I need some time and I don't, I'm not a napper. I don't come home and go to sleep, but I'll go for a walk or try to do a workout or something. Just get out of the house and do something to reset. And that seems to be helping, I'd say, big time. Another question I ask guests, or is this, do you think this was, can you pinpoint calls or is this just something that's accumulated? Yeah, that's something that, that I've learned or that I talked about with her is that I, I don't, and even listening to some of your episodes, I don't have really the baby dying in a fire. The I just have 15 years of fire service experience, and I know that's enough to take a toll on you. <laughs> and I've been in a couple fatal fires, tons of wrecks, way too many suicides and overdoses. And one thing that I've realized is how, I guess, hypersensitive I become on the scene, I, I can still remember scenes, still remember smells, still remember the layout of the house or the damage to the vehicle or where the body was found in the position. You just remember so much from some of these calls. And that's crazy. Like, I don't even know what I ate for breakfast today or <laughs> what I got to do tomorrow. But I remember shit from, you know, five, 10, almost 15 years ago. I want to go back because you just went through a litany of things that <laughs> anybody in their Anybody that would experience them would go, oh, fuck, that's what did it. But you just you just identified them as nonchalant, like most of us do. You said, yeah. I've been there through a few fatal fires, the accidents, and you suicides, and, and you labeled them as, but you, but you, but like I said, it was nonchalant. It was because to us, it's commonplace. And so I, I think you answered the question. When mm -hmm. You answered a couple of questions <laughs> by that statement alone. Yeah, you're right. And I didn't even think or realize that at the time saying it that way, but you're right. And that's something that I learned that that type of exposure over the course of time is obviously I'm learning now how much that's going to impact me or us firemen as a whole. And so that kind of gets me to another, another point that I remember, uh, I think the reason you started your show was the local suicides of first responders in your area and unfortunately stack i can tell you man we got the same problem i know a lot of the area departments that have lost somebody to suicide and i just thought to myself we 
learn everything we can about a line of duty with the NIOSH reports and all that we, and that's a good thing. We don't want to lose members in the same way again, if it can be prevented, if there's things that we can do. And I look at these uh, first responder suicides and I think about that. I'm like, why don't we try to learn from these deaths that unfortunately occur as much as we try to learn from ones that maybe died in a fight. Why don't we study I think we that? need to honor. Yeah. We need to honor these poor souls that have lost their battle and nobody they, that wasn't on their radar when they signed up for the job. I know it's not on my radar. I've never been that down that road or into crisis mode is what my therapist called at one time when I texted for an appointment. But I also know that I don't want to get any closer down that road. And I want to try to do what I can every day for myself to make sure that I'm present for my family, present for my crew and just taking care of myself because nobody should have to go through that. I don't want to hijack what you're, what you're talking about, but you go back to this uh, idea of learning from suicides. I think that there's a, I think there's a basic step that we're missing before we can even learn from the suicides. And that's just fucking admitting that there are suicides. Yes, because we don't even keep statistics on how many of us kill ourselves because departments are ashamed of it and they hide it. Yeah, you're right. I think that's I'd be terrified to learn the actual numbers, I think. Yeah, good luck finding them because it's. (laughs) yeah, I think it's impossible. Yes, there are guesstimations out there and and people are going to say it's this. I would I would garner the to guess that if you tell me that there's 110 suicides per year, that it's probably double that. Yeah, I would say you're probably pretty close there. I guess the the first step to learning from us from these suicides is just to damn. Let's just acknowledge that they're happening. Yeah. So that's my soapbox for that subject. You're right, man. And I think that's a good point. And hopefully, we can get there soon. And that's why you and I are sitting here today having a conversation. So if we bring it to light and we force people to talk about it, then hopefully some change can come about from it. Amen. I'll, I'll get out of your way and let you continue on with your story. <laughs> so yeah, I've, we've talked a little bit about the job, a decent amount about the job in my uh, therapy sessions and also some of my childhood or family stuff. And I've had, like I said, a pretty good experience this time around. I um, went through the EMDR with my therapist and I forget what that stands for it's eye movement desensitization something yes and it, you're it's it's basically that it's using like you said does eye movements these rapid movements to to desensitize and reorganize thoughts yeah so i i went through that for a few sessions maybe three four sessions and we went through it with talking about pretty much like my relationship with my dad and things like that and my family life. And it was very weird at first to me. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what was happening. If I was doing it correctly or not, we would pause, take a break. She'd ask me what I'm thinking or what's going on. I'm like, nothing. (laughs) But then she kept pressing and we kept going. And then it was turned into meaningful therapy sessions that I think helped me quite a bit, actually. And we're going to get into that with some job stuff coming up. That's uh, hopefully on the books for my next my next session with her. I try to go about monthly now. Should probably go more, but I'm trying to stick to monthly. I used to go more when I first started. I was going like every week, 
So here's a question for you. And explain to me, because I've done a, a couple of sessions of EMDR. Explain to me what that setting looks like for you. So we, there's a, I don't know if this is where you're going with it, but like a, almost like it looked to me, I thought it was a squeegee, to be honest. <laughs> there's like this, it was like on a stand and like this bar going and I never saw it. I didn't know what it was. It was just sitting there. And she's in the fifth floor of a big building. I'm like, is that a squeegee to wash windows? She's like, no, that's for EMDR. I was like, oh. <laughs> so she's, that's how we started talking about it in the first place. And then it's just a series of lights and they go back and forth from side to side. And she'll do it for maybe 30 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, take a break just for a few seconds, ask me what I'm thinking. And if nothing, I'll keep going. And it just kind of, I don't want to say guides the conversation, but it's, it definitely got me through some shit, <laughs> if that makes sense. So I know that when I did the mm-hmm. two times I've done it, it's been a very scripted thing. And okay. I don't, I don't know if that's what you experienced or not, but my therapist read from a script and, and for the eye movement for me, it was just following her hand because she would extend it out and, and bring it back and forth, almost like a metronome. And, okay. and it was basically following her fingers with my eyes and then she would talk and I would answer and she would talk and I would answer and same thing. What What's coming up when we talk about X, what's coming up when we talk about Y and then going back through another session of it. And so instead of the lights, her fingers were taking the spot of the lights. And so that, it sounds very similar. It's just a different mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think so far? There's been a couple of times where I went, Oh, okay. Now I see what I never thought of it that way or never, I didn't think that was okay to think of it that way. So there's, it's been a couple of moments where I said, okay, that, that makes sense. And it's kind of, well, like the, like it says, reorganize those thoughts. Yeah. Like you're, I think you just nailed it. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, I've had some, I guess, aha, but different perspective on things. And yeah, I think it's been helpful. All right, so where do you want? It's I, I didn't mean to hijack again, man. I'm sorry. No, not at all, not so, at all. And if I've got you completely off track, we can get no. back on. I don't know where you wanted to go with from here. Not at all. Let's see. So I think one of the other things we've talked about in my sessions, she's we're getting into, you know, like I said, man, some of the suicides are the ones that have kind of stuck with me. She's like she, she was like, oh, that's interesting, and I'm like, yeah, I still remember like all these little details about these fucked up calls. And I'm like, I don't know why. I'm like, I don't remember. Like I said, <laughs> I don't remember shit from an hour ago, but I remember. So she's like, maybe we need to try to go through that a step further and try to process some of that shit so you can bury it and put it away for good. So I'm hoping that that is something that we visit in the near future. And I know that from your email, I know that when you talk about suicides, you, I, th- I believe you're talking, I know there's at least one that was, a, was specifically a hanging and you remember like yeah. music from that. And, uh-huh. and you had another one that was very personal and it was a, again, a hanging, correct? Yeah. Those, I think you're right. And the hangings I think are suicides are a little creepy. They're terrible, but I think the hangings are put a different twist on it. Almost like even creepier or, I don't know, but they just, they've definitely stuck with me. I like, like I said, I remember a lot about them and I've been on, I don't know, too many and hopefully no, no more. I don't want to go on anymore, but yeah, I think I remember the one I, I had one is like right behind one of our stations. So we were there pretty quick and the family, 
the cops had called us up there. They found them. The family's looking for their son at the park behind their garage. And his phone just keeps blowing up. It was, uh, what was it? R. Kelly, I believe I can fly, I think was. Just kept playing. And he's hanging in the garage. We're cutting him down. And uh, the phone just keeps going. I remember that. Just like looking at my partner like, what the fuck? And then sure enough, family comes back, turns the corner. And they see him. And they obviously start screaming and crying and you know that i think those screams you always remember that shit doesn't go away the screams don't go away that's for goddamn sure yeah i remember those screams from various calls i've been on but i remember the first time i heard those screams i was probably i wasn't even on the job i was in high school and I'd been pretty lucky up to then. I had two grandparents still alive. My other two grandparents passed when I was very little. I hadn't really experienced death at all and didn't know much about it or how to process it or anything. And I remember a neighbor family, we were friends with this family a couple doors down from us and our parents were friendly with each other. The kids were a little younger than me and my siblings, so we didn't really, uh, hang out but i knew him and their father unfortunately passed away from a brain aneurysm and i remember it was uh i'm pretty it was columbus day because i was home from school i was probably i think i was shooting hoops out front with my brother or something and i remember when the wife came home and told those three poor kids that they're never going to see their dad again and the screaming and the crying from them. I mean, that's that's shit that we're talking, what, I was probably 15. We're talking like almost 25 years ago, probably. And that was the first time I heard those screams. But yeah, I've heard them quite a few times since, unfortunately. So those are things you're going to get into in future sessions with her, correct? Is that the plan? Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, like I said, I think... Uh, to process some of it because I don't think I ever really have. And I think I'm learning that's what the brain of a first responder needs to do. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I think I did therapy this time around. I, like I said, I was going every week for a while and I was, uh, doing good, but then I just stopped and it probably took, you know, I probably took a six month break or something in, in between and going back to her. And I'm realizing that I, I didn't really get to all this other shit that I think I still need to deal with. I'm hoping to, uh, yeah, work with her and, you know, hopefully just uh, keep on improving my quality of life on and off the job. And not to bounce around. And, and I apologize because yeah. I I, I'm causing the bounce around right now. You talked about how it was affecting home life. And that's exactly why you decided to take care of things is because you were seeing it. In your relationship, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to figure out is what did, what's changed there? How do you, what's different now between you, you would, in your email, you stated that you would come home just, just usually pissed off, correct? Yeah. Just like for no reason. I, I couldn't really place it or understand why. And I know that my wife didn't uh, do anything to deserve any kind of cold shoulder or any kind of negative treatment or, and I just kind of stepped back and realized that 
that it it's all on me that I need to work on me and fix whatever I got going on before we can have a healthy relationship. And so I guess my question is kind of centers around the fact you, you, you mentioned when we talked before is that you didn't know how, or you didn't want to tell her, Hey, this is what I did last night, whether it's a kid out of a car wreck or a fire or whatever it is. You just didn't, you didn't, it's almost a protection thing. Why bother her with that? How do you handle that? Yeah. So that actually was something that we never once talked really about the job, especially calls. She just knew I was a fireman. I was gone for 24 hours. Just left it at that. And I'm not really close, super close with uh, my old buddy. I'm pretty much closer with my firefighter buddies and they know the job. We don't need to talk about the job. So I never talked about it with anybody. My therapist suggested that she said, you need somebody to talk to about it, whether it's, whether it is somebody on the job with you or not, but somebody. And I mentioned that to my wife and she was uh, pretty open to it. And she actually, I'm lucky, she's a counselor and she deals with not exactly first responder. She's a school counselor and deals with uh, childhood trauma and things like that on a daily basis, but she couldn't be more supportive. And she was like, I am happy to talk to you about the job and things that you go through. So it really had a positive spin on our relationship. It's making us a stronger relationship overall, which has been a blessing through this whole thing. And so you're able to, to, to you're able to discuss the calls or the experiences from the shift before with her now. Yeah, and like the other day, I got uh, got forced, and I we get forced in twelve hour slots. So I was forced for the day, and of course we had something going on, and I hurry home and meet up with her, and I'm like, oh sorry, you got dinged for a full arrest right before I got out the door, so I had to go and. Well, and like somebody else was with her, we were at like a party and she just, they stopped everything. Wait, what? And I'm like, oh, this is just our normal conversation now. And then one of her friends was just like, wait, what the hell are you talking about? I'm, I'm very lucky in that she is supportive of it. And yeah, I can talk to her about the calls and she knows that it takes a toll on me. Whereas before she's just like, oh, I'm married to a fireman. <laughs> and that was that. But now she's starting to understand a little bit more and more. I know we've talked before and, and for listeners, they'll, they'll, they don't know that we already recorded once and neither one of us were terribly happy with the recording. So we're doing it again. <laughs> and so I, I lose track of whether I'm talking about the email or talking about the last time we spoke, but it doesn't matter right now. You described yourself at one point as, as a broken man, husband, father. W what do you describe yourself as now? Yeah, I think I, uh, that was part of my awakening that I was needed to work on myself was like, I got two healthy kids. I got a beautiful wife, got a nice house and a nice suburb, and I just wasn't happy. I was still a miserable, angry, pissed off train wreck of a person. Still drink, but nowhere near like I did back in the day. And I probably go up and down with that sometimes. And that was something that I realized that I'm just like, I've got it all. I got a job I love and you know, on top of the family and everything. And I just realize that it starts with me that it's got to come from within me to kind of work on myself to make sure that i don't want to blow blow this opportunity i have we've got a beautiful family and just trying to make sure i do take care of myself 
to be the best I can for my wife and kids. I don't know. What was the, how did you word that exactly? I know I said I had mentioned that I was broken. Yeah. I just wondering um, where you felt you were now as compared to when you said you felt you were a broken, basically you just said a broken human. And I was just curious yeah. as to where you feel going through some of these therapy sessions going through the fact oh, that you've changed your communication yeah. pattern with your wife and you, yeah. you process some of these feelings. How do you define yourself now? So I'll, yeah, I'd like to add on to that is I think I mentioned before where sometimes just the job itself took everything out of me. And now it's like the job and the kids take everything out of me. I got nothing left for myself, nothing left for my wife. So I realized that though it, I think I thought of it as selfish, but I need to spend a little time for myself to take care of myself physically and maybe go to a therapy session and maybe hang out with some buddies. I've definitely gone through some isolation periods where I just, eh, it's easier just to stay home. I don't care about anything. And then when I actually do go out and do something with some buddies, I'm like, oh, that was fun. I should do that more often. So I'm just learning the little things that uh, add up and make a big difference. And that makes a huge difference, actually, learning those little things because then they snowball into an effect for you. Yeah. So I know, yeah, I'm, I, you're, and you nailed it. It's, it's snowballing. I'm trying to build on what I got. I have a pretty solid base and it's I'm only trying to build upwards from here. No, I think that's, um, I think that's perfect. And that's all we can do is try to improve ourselves. You know, we can't, comp- I, I heard, a, I don't know. I, I forgot who said it, but actually I think my therapist said it and, and it all starts to run together. And I apologize if someone, we can't compare ourselves to our to us a year ago or two years ago. We can't say, I want to be me again. There's no me again. The only me is what I'm going to be now or tomorrow. You're right. And yeah, the the past is the past. There's no change in it. Maybe learn from it. Oh, listen, I'm learning (laughs) lessons every day from my past. If something comes pops up every day and I was like, Oh shit, I did that too. I mean, I don't want to do that shit. Yeah. <laughs> no, trust me. I, I learned from my, my mistakes. I'm in fact, I wrote about it today. So I'm, so I get, I know the feeling. It's uh, you know, it's a, uh, I think I mentioned this last time talking to you or maybe in my email, but I think about back when, when we were coming up trying to get on the job, how competitive it was. And I was testing every weekend for, you know, this place, that place, whatever. And all that work that I put in to get the job felt rewarding. And and I still got to work at the job with training and all that. But what I'm saying is anything worth, anything that's enjoyable or worth having is worth working for. You got to put in the effort. And that's what I'm learning with parenting and my marriage and myself. I was going to say, most importantly, yourself. Yeah, because all the other sure. two things are going to stem from how you feel about yourself. Yeah, so that's been the challenge for me, especially with doing twenty fours and then overtime trades, whatever, gone for forty eight, and I just feel guilty trying to not come home and be the dad and let my wife get out of the house. Or, but I realize how important that is, regardless if I just came off a of forty eight or not. It's going to make or break my next forty eight. If I just have an hour or two here, or there, which is a, is a small thing, an hour or two in, in, in this grand scheme of things, it's a small thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think my wife realizes that now too. And one thing, um, early on in my therapy sessions that I learned, or I came up with that 
I think we have disagreements or whatever all the time, me and my wife. And, or if she's upset about something that I don't care about, I just, not that I don't care about it, but I can, I'll just extend my ring finger as if it's like a middle finger. And that's the message. Our marriage is bigger than this bullshit. And it's not worth talking about right now while one of us is upset and we'll figure it out. So that's a quick symbol that I can show her, say, Hey, you know what? Not now, but I love you. Our marriage is more important than whatever we're talking about right now. So table it. Which is a good tool. It's a great tool. Yeah. It's worked well. <laughs> it's worked well for us. That's for sure. So I know early on in the show, I talked about the similarities of our story, you know, between the alcohol and the high school experience and, and mm. I think the biggest part is your dad's lung cancer because you've read my blog and you've talked to me about it in, in the email and in, in on the last time we spoke yeah. about the importance of making sure you, you spend some time. And I don't know, most listeners might not know that my mom is, is battling stage four lung cancer right now herself. And the similarities when I read your email were just eerie. So, you know, because <laughs> you talked about the suicides and the hangings, you talked about the the... the the stage three lung cancer for your dad. You talked about the the drinking and, and the journey. I'm a couple of years older you than you. The journey has been very similar. It's paralleled each other. So it, it was a fascinating story to read. And I appreciate the fact that you reached out to me. I appreciate the fact that you, you definitely gave me some advice. And of course, I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your story. And so I, it takes guts. It takes balls. It takes whatever. I just, I, I'm flabbergasted. I'm amazed every time someone does it. So thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity, and I just think what you're doing is great. It's great cause, a cause bigger than us. It's for all first responders to benefit from, and not even first responders, but everyone. So I want to say thank you to you. So let's close out with the two questions that I ask everybody. And I, I believe you answered them last time, but I'm going to make you answer them again because I'm not going to go search and cut and paste. <laughs> and so anyway, the first one being the everyday carry based on the book, fact that I call the show, the things we all carry, we carry something into every call. We carry something out of calls, which is not physical. It's going to be a more of an emotional or yeah, an emotional scar for lack of a better word. Uh, so what's something outside of the fire department, something is an everyday carry for you that you have to have on you or you feel naked without. Yeah, I think, I think I've heard a couple other people say same thing, but for me, it's the uh, earbuds. I always have them in listening to music as much as I can or podcasts or just walking around the house, grocery shopping, whatever. I usually have them on me. If they're not in my ears, they're in my pocket. What do you listen to these days? Music. Um, music wise, I'd say I've been listening to some bluegrass little bit of folksy bluegrass type trampled by turtles okay yonder mountain green sky bluegrass couple just kind of i don't know if it's like it's peaceful to me or something but that's just what i've been digging lately cool very cool yeah our listeners if they're not familiar can check it out uh, i'm familiar with all three so I, I appreciate the choice all right so a book what book do you want to recommend people so the book, I, I, I listen for recommendations on your show and I actually just read, and I think you recommended it or somebody else create your own light. Oh, tra Travis house. Yeah. And yeah, you're right, man. I, I read that thing in two days. So that was a, a pretty good book that I'm just finished and looking forward to sharing it around the firehouse. 
yeah, it's a it's an enlightening book, and it's like I said, and like you just said as well, it's not a difficult read. It's it it keeps your attention, and you can finish it in a couple of days if you put your mind to it. Yeah, and you know what? Like I remember telling myself as I'm reading it, like man, this guy is so he remembers these fires. It's so descriptive. I know it's a book. It might be made up some of it, but I believe it on all those calls that he described. Yeah, and he's if you get the chance to see Travis in person when he does his seminars, it's it's well worth the time and money if there's a charge for it. A lot of times the locals are paying for him to come in and talk to people. I saw him last, I saw him a few months ago, and he's coming back into town at the, I guess, the middle part of this month. So I think around the 20th nice. of September. So he's yeah. a good dude. and, and he's, he I just missed story. him. You did? He was here. He was here like a week ago, and I was on shift. I couldn't get the approval. And, uh, but they said, you know what, we're going to budget for the safety committee to go to classes next year. So hopefully I'll catch them next year. Nice. And if you do, that's perfect. Cause he's an interesting presenter and he has a good take on things. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. All right, man. You got anything else you want to share? No, man. I want to thank you for your time. And like I said, I love the episodes and I'll be waiting for more to come. They're coming out every Wednesday, sometimes twice a week. (laughs) I I get yelled at for doing them twice. I'm at limit today or this week to once and maybe two next week. Yeah. We'll see where it goes. I just want people to spread the word a little bit so we can all benefit a little bit more. Yeah, I, I hear you. Hopefully I'll share your links and stuff around here over in the Midwest. Cool. All right. I appreciate your time and uh, I'm going to go ahead and shut it down and uh, you can go take care of your daughter and enjoy the rest. (laughs) She's squirming around. I don't know if you heard her. I heard her. I heard her. So I I figured it might be time to go play dad. (laughs) Yep. It's about that time. All right, but I appreciate it, man. Thanks for talking to me again. All right. We're out. All right, Zach. Later. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves, and remember to check in on each other.